Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. In this episode, the story of an 1850s celebrity divorce trial, which has more than a few startling parallels with a much more recent trial that exposed to the unsavoury truths of a Hollywood marriage for the fascination, dissection and discussion of the world's press and public. Edwin Forrest was the most famous American actor of his day. More than famous, he was something of a folk hero. The first Shakespearean leading man of note to come out of America, Forrest, born in Philadelphia in 1806, had a glittering career on the US stage in the first half of the 19th century, playing all the major Shakespeare roles Macbeth, Hamlet, Mark Antony, etc., etc. His success carried him over the ocean onto several theatre tours of Great Britain. As the home of Shakespeare, in the early 19th century, an American actor's acceptance and acclaim on the British stage was seen as a great feather in Forrest's cap. Edwin Forrest's foreign tours initially heightened his reputation and progressed his career on both sides of the Atlantic, but in the long term they were to prove pivotal for the future downturn of his life on two counts. First, his international appearances brought Forrest into direct rivalry with the leading British Shakespearean actor of the day, William Macready. The two men had very different acting styles and physical presences. Macready was regarded as cultured, educated and refined, a devotee of restraint and authenticity on the stage. He appealed to America's upper classes and literati. Forrest was muscular and brawny, with a raw, forceful acting style. He was a pin-up boy for the newly crystallising American patriotic identity, and he garnered a loyal following among working-class theatre-goers. After meeting in the mid-1830s, Macready and Forrest became notorious rivals. They both toured each other's countries, and both suspected the other man of seeking to undermine their box office success and reputation while they were on their tours. Macready firmly won the support of the British press when, in 1845, Forrest hissed Macready's performance of Hamlet, a big taboo for theatre-going in Britain. Back in America, 
anti-British sentiment was sharply on the rise in the 1840s, among both the press and public, not least among the growing tide of immigrants fleeing the Irish potato famine. Forrest's loyal working-class fanbase was fervently anti-British, and when the rather posh William McCready travelled to the US in 1849, he became the focal point of their anger. He was booed at every performance, and projectiles, ranging from rotten vegetables to dead animals, were thrown at the stage. Edwin Forrest was encouraging of this unsavoury welcome to his rival actor, and things reached ahead in May. Macready arrived in New York City, where Edwin Forrest had lived for many years and had a large fan base. Macready was scheduled to do a run of performances of Macbeth at the Astor Place Theatre. On the first night, he had to mime the entire play, as he could not be heard over the shouting of the audience and the hurling of eggs and other objects at the stage. Things were considerably, and tragically, worse on the second night. Fighting broke out inside the theatre between Forrest's fans and McCready's fans. Outside, a crowd of thousands of Forrest's fans gathered and stormed the building. The militia was called in to restore order. They opened fire on the rioters, killing 22 people and injuring dozens more. The so-called Astor Place Riot was as much about class antagonism and anti-British sentiment as it was about the professional rivalry and different performance styles of William McCready and Edwin Forrest. But regardless, Forrest's reputation was badly damaged. 1849 was a bleak year for Forrest on a professional front. He was already smarting from the disappointing reception and low returns he had had on his last British tour two years earlier. Now his stock in the theatre world of his home country plummeted. To make things worse, Forrest's personal life was unravelling at the same time and would soon draw as much unwelcome newspaper and public attention as his feud with Macready. For in the very same month of the Astor Place riot, in May 1849, Edwin Forrest separated from his wife of twelve years. Mrs. Catherine Forrest was English by birth. Edwin had met her, then Miss Catherine Norton Sinclair, on one of his early tours of Britain. Catherine came from a theatrical background, as her father was a professional singer, and she herself was cultured and well-educated. The two married in 1837 and moved to New York. Here, they gave every appearance of being a happily married couple. Edwin was frequently away, touring US or international theatres. Catherine would sometimes travel with her husband and sometimes stay behind in New York, where she quickly ingratiated herself into artistic and literary society. Edwin himself did not enjoy mixing with that sort of company, but never objected to his wife's social life. But then, for reasons we shall explore, in 1849, everything fell apart. In May, Edwin and Catherine moved out of their Manhattan home on 22nd Street. Edwin returned to his family home in Philadelphia, while Catherine stayed in New York, where both her sisters now also lived. A few months later, Edwin filed for divorce from his wife in the state of Pennsylvania, claiming she had committed adultery. But the suit was thrown out of court on the grounds that the marriage and main residence of the couple had been in New York. With the suit dismissed, Catherine seized her opportunity for a counterattack. 
She now sued Edwin for divorce in the state of New York, accusing her husband of being the one who had committed adultery. It took over two years from their initial separation for the divorce case to go to trial. But on December 16, 1851, the estranged couple finally faced each other across a New York courtroom. Over the previous two years, both Edwin and Catherine had suffered as their names, reputations and potential futures were sullied by accusations of impropriety and adultery. By December 1851, both were adamantly sticking to their guns that they were the injured party and that their spouse had been the unfaithful one. It is important to note at this stage that divorce laws in the 19th century were considerably stricter than they are today. The only legal ground for divorce in the state of New York in the 1850s was adultery. A key goal for both Edwin and Catherine as they embarked on the very public trial was to clear their own name and prove that they had been unfairly, slanderously accused. But there was more at stake even than that. Either Edwin or Catherine had to prove that the other person had been unfaithful or the divorce would not be granted. The need to prove adultery was a guarantee for the gossip-hungry journalists and public that the trial would be detailed, graphic and salacious. Edwin Forrest was the most famous American actor of his day. This was the celebrity divorce trial of the century. And the newspapers, on both sides of the Atlantic, were gripped. They had already reported, with guilty pleasure, on the couple's separation and Edwin's attempt to divorce Catherine in Pennsylvania. As one British newspaper, The Magnet, put it in April 1850, much gossip has been produced by an attempt on the part of Edwin Forrest, the actor, to procure a divorce against his wife from the legislature of Pennsylvania. After Pennsylvania threw out the divorce suit, the magnet continued, Catherine Forrest commenced proceedings for a divorce against Mr. Forrest. This is turning the tables with a vengeance. But the entire subject savours too much of scandal to require more than a passing note. This sneering final sentence is typical of much of the reporting around the Forrest case. The newspapers could not resist repeating every salacious detail of the marriage as it was revealed in court, but they did so often with short disclaimers to distance themselves from the stench of scandal, snobbishly looking down on any reader who should degrade themselves by entertaining an interest in the case. This is just one of many ways in which reading about the Forrest divorce trial reminded me so much of the most recent famous celebrity couple dispute, the Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial. Another parallel is the extreme level of reporting on the trials. In 2022, the Depp-Heard trial was live-streamed and live-blogged so that anyone who was interested could follow every second and every word as the drama unfolded. In 1852, the equivalent of live streaming was the almost live newspaper reporting. Several leading newspapers, including the New York Herald and the New York Tribune, assigned reporters who sat in on the court proceedings for every day of the six-week trial, and on each of those days, they reported word for word on what happened inside the courtroom. Every word of the opening and closing statements, of the witness testimonies, of the questions and counter-questions, 
of discussions and disputes between the judge and the lawyers on procedure and permissible evidence and witnesses. Whole pages of the newspaper's large broadsheets were filled day after day with these verbatim transcripts. And for those who wanted to relive the drama after the trial concluded, the entire transcripts of the trial, as recorded by the law reporter of the New York Herald, were published as a book running to almost 200 pages. It is this book and the daily newspaper reports of the trial that I drew on for this podcast episode. While the trial was underway, for those members of the public who were too impatient to wait for the next issue of the papers, there was always the option of going down to watch the trial inside the courtroom or wait outside and pick up gossip from those hovering around. As in the Depp Heard case, throngs of fans gathered outside the courthouse. The New York Herald reported on the opening day of the trial, this important and exciting case, after numerous postponements, is at length fairly before our courts. The anxiety of the public to see and hear all the facts and proceedings connected with it was sufficiently manifested by the crowds which thronged every avenue promising access to the courtroom. We noticed many of our most respectable citizens among the assemblage, eager to rush in at the first opening of the doors. Those who managed to squeeze their way into the courtroom were rewarded with an up-close view of the husband and wife at the centre of this trial. Catherine Forrest was described by the Herald as someone who rather exceeds the medium height, is of good figure and very erect carriage. She was habited in black, wore a black silk bonnet lined with a white cap, and a black lace veil covering her face. Her countenance indicates her English birth. Her face is plump and rather round, the nose prominent and slightly aquiline, the mouth good and the teeth faultless. Her eyes are extremely large and shadowed by a bold high forehead and strongly defined eyebrows, her black hair being parted in the centre. In an age before photographs appeared in newspapers, this would be the first time many readers would have been able to picture Catherine Forrest. Among the many details of her appearance, it was rather amusing to learn that in 19th century America, having good teeth was considered a characteristic of the English. How things have changed. Catherine's estranged husband was not afforded such a detailed portrait by the newspaper. Mr Edwin Forrest is too well known to require us to give a description of his person. He looked extremely well and was marked with all the outward characteristics of a gentleman, equally as Mrs F bore every indication of a lady. Edwin and Catherine were accompanied into the courtroom by their respective legal counsels. Both these men were successful and prominent lawyers, and, just as in the Depp Heard case almost 200 years later, their fame would skyrocket after their involvement in this trial. Catherine was represented by Charles O'Connor. He was the son of an Irish immigrant and a rising star of the New York legal profession. He became a household name by representing Catherine, and 20 years later he was even nominated as a Democratic candidate for president, but he refused to run. Edwin was represented by a man who already had powerful political connections. His lawyer was John Van Buren, a recent Attorney General of New York and son of former US President Martin Van Buren. John Van Buren moved in illustrious circles indeed, perhaps ironically for the man chosen to represent the hero of the working man, 
Van Buren had even attended the coronation of Queen Victoria. Van Buren may have moved in the lofty circles of presidents and monarchs, but in the divorce court, he did not shy away from the basest tactics of slinging mud and raking up scandal to bring his client's wife down. Catherine Forrest was accused of committing adultery, not once, but repeatedly, and with numerous men. The first of these men was another actor, Mr. George Jameson. In the spring of 1848, Catherine was travelling with her husband in the area now known as the Midwest of the United States. In May, the couple arrived in Cincinnati, Ohio, and booked in to stay at the City Hotel. Booked into a neighbouring room was George Jameson. Jameson had been a friend and colleague of Edwin's for some years, and the two had acted together on the stage. One day, Edwin, Catherine and George had plans to go together at 3pm to visit a phonologist, someone who claims to be able to analyse human behaviour by the shape and bumps of the head. Prior to their appointment, Edwin and another friend, Samuel Sherwood Smith, went out for a 2pm sitting Edwin had booked with a portrait artist. When they arrived at the studio, the artist was not to be found, and so the two men returned unexpectedly early to the hotel. According to the later accounts of both Edwin and Smith, Edwin was walking several yards ahead of his friend when he entered his hotel room. When Smith entered the room a few seconds later, he found not only Edwin present, but also Catherine and George Jameson. Jameson immediately left the room and did not appear for the 3pm phonologist appointment. As for Edwin, Smith noticed in him a high and unusual degree of excitement on the part of Mr. Forrest in relation to his wife, and Smith deduced that Forrest must have observed something in the position or deportment of Mr. Jameson and Mrs. Forrest upon entering the room. Edwin Forrest did not offer an explanation to Smith at the time, but when he sued his wife for divorce two years later, he claimed that upon entering the room, he had been amazed and confounded to discover his wife standing between the knees of Mr. Jameson, who was sitting on the sofa with his hands upon her person. The two were surprised by Edwin's sudden entrance, and Jameson quickly explained their unusual position on account of him having been in the act of pointing out Catherine's phrenological developments. Edwin claimed that as he was of an unsuspicious nature and anxious to believe that it was nothing more than an act of imprudence on her part, I was for a time quieted by this explanation. As Smith was too late to see Jameson carrying out his phonological examination, the only witness to this alleged incident was Edwin Forrest. Either he had found the pair in a compromising position and decided to believe in his wife's innocence, or... Edwin was lying, and his wife was not standing between the legs of another man. Because Edwin did not actually accuse his wife of infidelity with Mr. Jameson for another eight months. The following January, in 1849, Catherine Forrest went to a party held by her sister, Mrs. Forhees. Edwin, who was not much of a party person, stayed at home. The Forrest's housekeeper, Christiana Underwood, later testified that that evening she had heard Edwin pacing the library during his wife's absence. I thought from his disturbed manner that he was uneasy and had something on his mind, she recollected. Mrs. Underwood went to bed before Catherine returned to the house at about two o'clock in the morning. Edwin was still awake, as was the Forrest's waiter, Robert Garvin. 
On coming up the stairs, Garvin heard loud and angry voices from the library, the door to which was open. Peeping inside, he saw Edwin and Catherine in the midst of a heated argument. He especially remembered Catherine striking her hand with force on the table and angrily saying, It's a lie! It's a lie! Christiana Underwood testified that the following morning, Catherine herself told her that she and Edwin had had a fight. Mrs. Underwood recalled that Catherine had said she had never seen him so much excited before, that he had said something terrible was going to happen, and she could not tell what he meant. Catherine was apparently at this point not entirely apprised of why her husband was so angry with her. That is, until the next morning, when Mrs. Underwood alleged that Catherine, upon going through some papers in her bureau, blurted out what a fool she had been, and told Mrs. Underwood that Edwin had got that letter. Edwin did indeed have a letter of Catherine's, an effusive love letter in George Jameson's handwriting. Crucially for Catherine's later defence, the letter was not actually addressed to her, but to Sweetest Consuelo. Consuelo is the title and lead character of a romantic novel published in the early 1840s by French writer Georges Sand. The novel was very much in vogue among Catherine's cultured circles, and she claimed to her husband, and later to the divorce court, that she had challenged her friend, Mr. Jameson, to write a letter in the style of Consuelo. She did not deny the letter was written for her by Mr. Jameson. He had given it to her, she said, just as she and Edwin departed Cincinnati on the steamboat the previous May. But the letter, she insisted, was not evidence of a passionate affair, but a simple literary exercise, a light-hearted dare between friends. Edwin refused to believe his wife. He kept hold of the letter, and later used it as the key piece of evidence in his attempt to divorce his wife in Pennsylvania. The letter was consequently published for all to read and judge. I will not read out the whole letter here, for it is rather long and repetitive, but perhaps the opening lines will suffice to let you form an opinion on whether these be the genuine outpourings of a lovesick young man, or a young man trying to imitate the tone of a passionate French romantic novel. And now, sweetest Consuelo, our brief dream is over, and such a dream. Have we not known real bliss? Have we not realised what poets love to set up as an ideal state, giving full licence to their imagination, scarce believing in its reality? Have we not experienced the truth that ecstasy is not a fiction? I have and as I will not permit myself to doubt you, I am certain you have. The letter continues in a similar strain for some time, before concluding with some rather poor poetry, which I will not inflict upon you. On the face of it, it is a highly suspicious letter. A husband coming across a gushing love letter to his wife in another man's hand would naturally jump to the worst conclusion. But Catherine's explanation cannot be dismissed out of hand. The letter is highly, almost ridiculously stylized, and it gives no particulars which definitely incriminate her. No names are named, no dates recorded, there is no recollection of specific past assignations or plans for future meetings. And it is just one letter which Catherine filed away among a bunch of letters from her sister and kept in a drawer which her husband had equally easy access to. He could have happened to come across it at any time between the May and January, and Catherine took no precautions in all that time to destroy or hide it. 
but Edwin refused to yield. The letter, he believed or claimed to believe, was written proof of his wife's infidelity. Just over three months later, at the start of May 1849, a week before the Astor Place riot, Edwin and Catherine separated, and soon the Consuelo letter would be the central plank in his divorce case. But neither he nor his lawyer Van Buren were relying on the letter alone in the divorce court. As mentioned, George Jameson was not Catherine's only alleged lover. We'll get back to the story shortly. Now, a quick interval for me to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about the podcast and subscribe for future episodes, you can go to shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. That's shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. Or find and follow Archive Sleuth on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Links to all these sites are in the show notes. That's enough from me. Now, just a short commercial break, then back to the story. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Edwin's work on the stage required him to regularly spend spells, sometimes up to weeks at a time, travelling away from New York. And according to the accounts of his two watchful servants, Christiana Underwood and Robert Garvin, whenever her husband was away, the wife flung the front door open to a bevy of male suitors. Christiana and Robert were Van Buren's two key witnesses. As you may remember from my podcast on the Mary Blandy murder trial, servants were essential for most households in an age before labour-saving devices. But bringing servants into your home also invited in eyes and ears that were privy to your most private, intimate moments, and that may not always be inclined to keep those private moments secret. Christiana and Robert come across as being very eager to spill the beans on their employer. In Christiana's case, this may be surprising. 53 years old at the time of the trial, Christiana Underwood hailed from Scotland and had known Catherine since childhood. After emigrating to the US in 1837, she spent two separate spells as the Forrest's housekeeper. Robert had a much shorter acquaintanceship with Catherine Forrest. He had emigrated from Ireland to the US very recently, in June 1848, and the following month found employment with the Forrests as a waiter. He did not have the easiest of times at the trial, the journalist's transcripts noting that he was several times laughed at by the crowd for his turn of phrase or professions of ignorance. Undeterred, Robert Garvin, as well as Christiana Underwood, gave extensive testimony on what they claimed to have seen and heard in the Forrest household. Between them, Christiana and Robert accused Catherine of improper relations with no less than six men. These men were the actor George Jameson, another actor named Samuel Marsden Raymond, Henry Wyckoff, a writer and diplomat, an English army officer named Captain Calcraft, a well-known New York journalist called Nathaniel Parker Willis, and Nathaniel's musician brother, Richard Storrs Willis. George Jameson and Wyckoff were only mentioned briefly. Christiana Underwood alleged that in the late summer of 1848, so several months after the Cincinnati incident, Jameson called on Catherine while Edwin was out of town and spent several hours alone with her in the drawing room. As for Henry Wyckoff, Robert Garvin alleged that Wyckoff once brought Catherine home from the theatre in his carriage. Garvin claimed, in his words, he saw and heard them playing and skipping around in the lower hall, and to the best of my belief, I heard him kiss her. One wonders what a noisy kisser Wyckoff must have been to have been overheard by a servant who was presumably spying from some distance. Crucially, and this is a recurring theme of the servant's testimony, while Garvin said he thought he heard Catherine being kissed, he did not actually see it. The other four alleged lovers were devoted significantly more time and examination over the course of the trial. To start with the actor Samuel Raymond, Christiana Underwood alleged that on one evening in the summer of 1847, when Edwin Forrest was again out of town, Mr Raymond called at the Forrest house between 7 and 8 o'clock in the evening and dined alone with Catherine. The housekeeper claimed Catherine had, in her words, been drinking a good deal and was a good deal the worse for what she had taken. After the meal, the allegedly intoxicated Catherine ran up the stairs, 
tripped up and sprained her ankle. Christiane attended to her injury in the drawing room until about ten o'clock, at which point Catherine said she could leave her and go to bed. Mr. Raymond was still in the house at this time, so Christiana going to bed left them unchaperoned. According to Christiana, the next morning, when she checked in on her mistress, Catherine told her that that devil, meaning Raymond, stayed all night. We sat talking very late. I should like to give the poor wretch some breakfast. And apparently taken aback, Christiana asked where Raymond had slept. Catherine replied that he had slept in the spare bedroom. Christiana's suspicions were aroused. The bed in the spare room had not been made up, and she had left the week's washing piled on the bed. Catherine battered away these objections, saying she had moved the washing herself, and that Mr. Raymond had slept on top of the bed. An unsatisfied Christiana went to investigate. She found the bed in the spare room had not been made up. There were no sheets on it, just a mattress, blankets, and counterpane. In her words, if anybody had slept there, it must have been on the outside, for the coverlid had not been turned down, nor anything disturbed. A few days later, Christiana alleged that Raymond came to the house again. While Raymond was in the library, Christiana went to Catherine's bedroom to help her get dressed. She was surprised, though, to find that Catherine was already dressed, in a tight black velvet dress that had to be fastened from the back, and which she could not possibly have fastened herself. When Christiana asked her how she had managed it, Catherine replied, Oh, that devil did it, meaning Samuel Raymond. In summary, then, Christiana Underwood testified that Samuel Raymond had once helped Catherine fasten her dress and had stayed in the house one night while Edwin Forrest was away. She had not actually caught Catherine and Raymond in a compromising position, not so much as an embrace, though some among the press and public may have considered the admission that another man had slept in the house while the husband was away telling enough. Another man, accused of staying overnight at the Forest household, was Richard Storrs Willis. Richard Willis was a musician and composer who had recently returned to America after spending several years studying in Europe. Richard was introduced to Catherine by his brother Nathaniel, who we shall come to shortly. He quickly grew close to Catherine and her family, as Catherine's sister, Mrs. Forhees, was very musical. Richard enjoyed playing piano with her and instructing Catherine's much younger sister, Virginia, in music. According to both Christiana Underwood and Robert Garvin, Richard Willis was a frequent caller at the Forest House whenever Edwin was away, and on one occasion was concealed in a bedroom of the house for not one, not two, but three consecutive nights. This alleged incident occurred in December 1848. According to Christiana, one evening, she came across several of the household servants standing in the dark in Edwin's dressing room, laughing together. This dressing room adjoined both the forest's bedroom and the library. Christiana could see that lights were burning in both those rooms. She therefore headed towards the library to put out the light there, but was intercepted by Catherine's younger sister Virginia, who was about twelve at the time. Virginia told her she mustn't put out the light, as the teacher, meaning Richard Willis, was about to give her a lesson in there. Christiana said she would in that case put out the light in the forest's bedroom instead, but Virginia stopped her again, saying, You must not go there. A gentleman is there, young Mr. Willis. According to Christiana, she shortly afterwards confronted Catherine by asking her who had been staying in the house for three nights. 
Catherine allegedly responded, Good God, who says so? To which Christiana replied, Why, all the servants know it. One servant who knew it was Robert Garvin. He testified that during those three days, he had seen Richard Willis step out of the spare bedroom in search of fresh water, wearing nothing but a shirt and pantaloons. Garvin also claimed that on another occasion, again when Edwin was away, he was standing outside the front door when a carriage arrived outside. Catherine got out. Behind her, Garvin saw Richard Willis stick his head out of the carriage, but then retract it again when he saw Garvin looking at him. Mrs. Forrest called out, Richard, come on, at which point Willis finally alighted and followed her into the house. So again, as with Samuel Raymond, the servants claimed that Catherine had spent time alone with a male visitor and had allowed him to stay overnight in the house. Once again, though, there was no definite eyewitness proof that Richard Willis had actually, physically, been intimate with Catherine. The same cannot be so confidently said of another of Catherine's alleged lovers, Richard's brother, Nathaniel Willis. Nathaniel Willis was a popular journalist and editor who had recently founded his own magazine, The Home Journal. He was a familiar face on the New York literary scene and widely read across the country. In 2022, several famous names from Hollywood and beyond were dragged into the Depp Heard proceedings. 170 years earlier, the implication of actors George Jameson and Samuel Raymond and the well-known writer Nathaniel Willis in a public divorce case added fuel to the fire of scandal and public fascination to no less a degree. Nathaniel Willis had known Edwin and Catherine for a number of years, and according to Christiana Underwood, his affair with Catherine went back a long time. At trial, she recalled an occasion from 1844 when Nathaniel came to call on Catherine. According to Christiana, Catherine spent about half an hour alone with her visitor, and when she reappeared, her cheeks were flushed and her hair disordered, and I thought he had been kissing her. By 1848, Nathaniel Willis was, allegedly, a frequent visitor. According to Robert Garvin, on these visits, Nathaniel and Catherine would go alone together into the drawing room. There they could not be observed. The drawing room windows overlooked the piazza at the back of the house, but the blinds were tightly shut. At least, that is what Robert Garvin deposed when called on to give evidence to support Edwin Forrest's divorce suit in Pennsylvania. By the time of the divorce trial in New York, Garvin had changed his story. He claimed that one day in December 1848, he happened to be outside, hosing down the piazza, when he noticed a gap in the drawing room blinds. Peeping inside, he claimed he saw Nathaniel Willis and Catherine lying on each other on the sofa. They stayed there, he said, for half an hour, and after they left, Garvin found discarded hairpins and an elastic gaiter on the floor. Robert Garvin comes across as a rather determined spy in the course of this trial. His biggest coup was apparently catching Catherine and the final of her alleged lovers, Captain Granby Calcraft, upon the brink of a compromising act. Captain Calcraft was a former army officer who had been appointed to a packet agent role in New York by the British government. Calcraft and Catherine had known each other in England, and he became an almost daily visitor to the Forest House after his move to New York. Garvin testified that on one occasion, in November or December 1848, 
so around exactly the same time that Catherine is also alleged to have hidden Richard Willis in her house for three nights, and to have lain with his brother Nathaniel on the sofa, Captain Calcraft came to the house at about ten or eleven in the morning. He spent the whole day with Catherine in the library, both enjoying the wines and liquors stored in the library closet. When the pair came down to dinner at four o'clock, Garvin opined that they were both the worse for drinking, and that Catherine was so much affected by drinking that she could scarcely carve the chicken placed on the table before her. After serving dinner, Garvin retired for a time to the kitchen. As the house darkened, he returned to the dining room to light the gas, but he found the dining room door was locked. On trying to enter, Catherine allegedly called to him through the locked door, saying she would light the gas herself. Garvin therefore returned to the kitchen, but his curiosity would not let him remain there long. As he recounted, Pretty soon, as I suspected something, I went up and entered the dining room through a pantry that connects between the hall and dining room. As I entered, I found Mrs. Forrest half lying, half sitting in Captain Calcraft's lap, with her arms on his breast and around his neck. As I came in, they both started, and Mrs. Forrest stood to her feet. She spoke sharply to me that I should not come in without knocking, and I immediately went out. Robert Garvin's claims to have seen Catherine, within the space of days, lying with Nathaniel Willis on a sofa and sitting on the lap of Captain Calcraft, are the closest either servant came to actually catching Catherine in the act of committing adultery. But the fact remained they had not seen her commit adultery. And what is more, the testimony of these two servants was quickly torn apart by Catherine's legal team. There were major inconsistencies between the testimonies Garvin gave in the Pennsylvania and New York cases that severely undermined Garvin's trustworthiness, not least the convenient gap in the drawing room blinds which Garvin suddenly recollected at the New York trial. These details aside, the entirety of their claims were thrown into doubt when evidence came to light that Robert Garvin and Christiana Underwood, as well as some other witnesses brought forward by Edwin's legal team, were handsomely compensated for testifying against Catherine. Edwin's lawyer, John Van Buren, knew that he did not have enough direct evidence to convince a jury beyond doubt that Catherine had committed adultery. To compensate for this gap in his evidence, Van Buren resorted to what can only be described as an all-out character assassination attempt. He repeatedly asked his witnesses questions about Catherine's general behaviour and conduct which were targeted at painting a picture of a woman so immoral by the standards of 1850s respectability that the jury would not doubt that she was the sort of woman who must have committed adultery, regardless of whether she was actually caught in the act or not. Van Buren's trial strategy was an all-out attempt to disgrace and discredit the woman who demurely walked into the courtroom that first day half-hidden behind her black veil, and who the Herald journalist described as bearing every indication of a lady. As you have already heard, in several of the servants' anecdotes, Catherine was described as worse for wear from drink. Drunkenness was to become a running theme in the testimonies of the servants and Edwin's friends who took the stand on his behalf. Andrew Stevens, a close friend of Edwin's, claimed that in November 1848 he attended the theatre to watch Edwin perform on stage. Across the auditorium, he spotted Catherine in a private box. When he went over to speak with her, 
he claimed he found her intoxicated, and when Edwin was out of town, the forest home allegedly became party central, with Catherine hosting numerous all-night drink-fueled parties for male and female friends. Christiana Underwood and Robert Garvin both recalled incidents of guests staying all night until five or six in the morning, of the servants going to sleep to the sound of Catherine's guests singing and drinking wine in the rooms beneath them, of being awoken in the middle of the night by noises in the kitchen to find that the merry guests were busy carrying up more drinks, of coming into the drawing room upon a morning to find the guests of the previous night still there wearing the previous evening's clothes and surrounded by empty glasses. None of these anecdotes had any direct bearing on the question of whether Catherine had committed adultery, but Van Buren needled out as many details about Catherine's social life as possible. The inference was clear. Catherine was a drunk. She was unable to control her appetites. She was a woman of loose morals. Respectable middle and upper class women do not intoxicate themselves to the point of spraining their ankles. And there was more. Catherine did not just drink. She smoked. Christiana Underwood reported that Catherine smoked ladies' cigars and that Captain Calcraft was in the habit of sending her presents of cigars. Mr. Lawson, a friend of Edwin's, also testified that he had seen Catherine smoke cigars and even the forest's builder, a Thomas Smith, was hauled up to the witness stand to testify that he had several times seen Catherine smoke small cigars and one time even an ordinary-sized cigar. So fixated did Van Buren become on questioning all the witnesses, including those testifying on behalf of Catherine, as to whether or not they had seen her smoking, that the judge eventually lost patience with him, while Van Buren argued that it was perfectly legitimate to show Catherine's general conduct the judge finally put an end to the matter by declaring, as to the whole business of smoking, he thought it quite immaterial. So why had Van Buren pursued this line of attack? Very simply, because in the 19th century, for a woman to smoke was a very shocking thing indeed. Respectable women should on no account be seen smoking in public. Some well-known women were endeavouring to break this taboo, one of those women, incidentally, being Georges Sand, the author of Consuelo, but smoking was still widely regarded as a habit associated with prostitution. The depiction of women holding cigarettes or cigars in paintings and photographs was a shorthand for loose morals and promiscuity. The jury would have been all too familiar with these associations, and Van Buren was counting on that. Through his witnesses, he cast Catherine as a woman who welcomed numerous male callers to her house while her husband was away, a woman who entertained those men alone, behind closed doors and shutters, drank wine and brandy with them, and smoked cigars. Of course she slept with them. What other possible inference could there be from such a catalogue of reprehensible behaviour? Catherine Forrest had to quietly sit in court, day after day, as Van Buren and her estranged husband sought to tear her character to shreds. But her opportunity to counterattack was coming. Her lawyer, Charles O'Connor, was ready to mount a vigorous defence of his client. First, by lining up numerous witnesses to discredit and disprove the allegations made about Catherine's male callers and general conduct. And secondly, by levelling accusations of adultery at Edwin Forrest. Catherine had to withstand insinuations that she was little better than a prostitute. 
but by the trial's end, Edwin would have to defend himself against evidence that he himself visited prostitutes. In short, just as would happen in the Depp-Heard trial many years later, the lawyers in the Forest Divorce trial presented two very different narratives of a marriage and two very different portraits of the estranged couple. It would be up to the jury to decide which story they believed. Don't miss the next episode of Archive Sleuth to find out what happened. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. The story of the celebrity divorce trial of the 19th century will conclude with episode 2. Until then, please spare a few seconds to recommend the show to your friends and family and leave me a rating or review on your favourite podcast app or on Podchaser. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. Digitised newspapers reporting on the trial were accessed via the Library of Congress's Chronicling America resource. The published report on the Forrest divorce case, as recorded by the law reporter of the New York Herald, is digitised by Harvard University Library. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.